Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge this morning that it all revolves, this whole world, each one of us, we revolve around your throne. And the glory is yours, and the praise is yours, and the honor is yours. God, this morning as we, as we dive deep into your word, God, you're going to convict us of some things. You're going to open up some dark corridors of our hearts that maybe haven't been opened in a while. And maybe we don't want to explore together, Lord, but, but God, give us the confidence that you go before us to guide us and behind us to protect us, that your love and your grace and your mercy goes along beside us to befriend us. It's in your name that we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be, have a seat. Uh, kids at this time, uh, ages first through fifth grade, you can head out to your classrooms in the rooms next door. It's just outside of those doors. There's teachers waiting for you in the back. Uh, parents, if this is your, uh, your first time, maybe first couple times at Encounter, of course, you're invited to go with your kids to maybe check out those rooms, meet some of the awesome teachers that we have helping out in the L room just on the other side of this very, very soundproofed wall. Uh, hey, couple of a uh, couple of next steps that we have for you. Uh, if you want to connect with us a little bit more this week, and the seat back in front of you, this is our connection card. We just love a chance uh, to hear a little bit more about what God is up to in your life. Maybe you have a prayer request or a praise report that you want to share with us uh, this week. We would love that you can drop it in the bucket in just a minute or in the box in between the doors on your way out. Uh, also, don't forget, a great way to keep up throughout the week is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the big social media engines that we use. Um, hey, next step time. Um, I, I asked if I could do the next step because we have some really, really exciting ones uh, coming at you today, right now. And I'm so pumped for the first one is uh, su Sunday, September 10 is our fall launch. It's the Sunday after Labor Day, and that's the day that we're going back to two morning worship experiences at 9.15 and 10.45. These are the perfect times. We've got it. We've done this one and this one. We've got it dialed in. It's going to be an even split. It's going to be amazing. 9.15 and 10.45. Um, at least this is what we're going to try next. Keep things guessing. But we, we call this now, we call this serve one. We call it attend one, serve one. Uh, because what we want to do around here is create a culture of serving and hospitality uh, so that uh, everybody who comes in here, guests, first-timers, everybody uh, knows that there's somebody brewing the coffee, greeting you at the door, taking care of the kids, telling the kids about Jesus each and every week. Uh, true story, I had a conversation with somebody who serves in kids. This was just a couple of weeks ago, and they told me, he said, I am so excited to go back to attend one, serve one, uh, to, to two morning worship experiences because all summer long I've had to choose between experiencing God by teaching kids about Jesus or experiencing God here in the auditorium space. And now, coming Sunday, September 10, fall launch Sunday, I can do both. I can attend one and I can serve at one. And so we're super pumped about that. If you've been attending Counter for a little while, uh, maybe it's just been like three times so far, non-consecutively, uh, it doesn't matter. If you call this your church home, we would love for you to check out a little bit more what it means for you to attend one, serve one, you can check out EncounterChurch.org slash serving for a little bit more about that. Okay, now the next next step that we have for you is, is super, super exciting because what we did, what we did a little while ago is we started, you know, we got a camera set up in back and we're like, hey, a lot of people are gone kind of different places throughout the summer and the year and, and they want to be a part of what God is doing here on the weekends. And so we just started streaming the, uh, the worship experiences online, just like a YouTube. It wasn't really well done or anything like that. But we just put it out there just in case that God could use that to connect and reach somebody. 
And, and as that sort of developed, what we started hearing were these stories about people, two different guys in Germany, streaming the Encounter Worship experience regularly. We have people in California as a part of this community, in Texas, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, just across town in Grand Rapids. Somebody took a picture of their phone set up in a coffee shop on an inland lake in northern Michigan and said, still part of Encounter this morning. We had an intern, and I am not making this up, stream Encounter Worship from on top of Yosemite Mountain. He texted me a picture. I love that so, so much. So it's time to move to the next stage of this. It's time to move to the next natural evolution. We call that encounter reach. Because this is all about reaching people with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Reaching people who are far from God and bringing them to new life in Jesus. What we're up to in this campaign is to, is to recreate this space. When we moved in, it was just code compliance. Sprinkling some a pipe on the walls and just like get it in so that we can meet mismatching chairs and now it's time hey let's really take a look at this space and let's get some matching chairs it's about time let's redo the audio the lighting so that we can we can capture an experience here that we can we can put out online and reach even more people who are far from God to bring them to new life in Jesus Christ. There's probably somebody that's gonna contact you if you've ever given information to Encounter in the past to share a little bit more. But if you wanna go ahead and check it out now, it's encounterchurch.org slash reach. And we'd love for you to learn a little bit more about what that means in the coming weeks. Okay, at this time, I wanna invite the offering takers to come forward as we celebrate our morning offering. If this is your first time at Encounter Church, of course, don't feel obligated to give, but this is a continuation of our worship as we give online, over text, or here in the buckets. Hey, perfect time to start attending church. I say that a lot, I know, but I truly do believe it's a perfect time to start coming to church. We're kicking off a, a new series here at Encounter uh, this week, today, right now. But first, just a gentle reminder that later this week, if you can believe it or not, uh, it's the first week of uh, NFL preseason games, right? Some of you, yeah, right, that, those of you clapping, awesome. The person sitting next to you, I can see your eyes rolling and like the sighing because you're like, you don't need to remind me, it's happening, all right? Um, so with that, I just want to kick off this series. Thank you. It's a gift. With a football analogy, with a football story. Uh, a couple of you are Lions fans, sorry about that, but it's a Lions story. I'm one too, it's fine. Uh, just, you know, it grows our heart, you know, of empathy for others. Uh, October 26, 2014, the NFL decides to bring the, their show on the road. In order to boost American football in Europe, uh, they, they decided to have uh, three games in Wembley Stadium in London, England. And in order to like, boost things, they really were hoping for these awesome competitive games. So they get, get a bunch of teams to go out there. And unfortunately, the first two games were just massive, massive blowouts. It wasn't competitive at all. And people kind of got bored and started leaving you know, halfway, three quarters of the way through it because it, it just wasn't that exciting. So it looked like an abysmal failure. And then the last game involved the Lions. So it didn't look any better because, not just because of the Lions, but because 
Because the, the Lions' best player, Calvin Johnson, one of the league's best ever receivers, was scheduled to be out that game. And so it didn't look like it was going to be a, a close game at all. It looked like it was going to be just another blowout. The Falcons were going to destroy the Lions. And for the first half, it absolutely looked that way. The first half it ended, and it was 0-21, Falcons winning. And it just uh, it didn't have Johnson. The whole thing just looked like an absolute you know, wreck. People started to leave. It's happening again. But I don't know. I don't know what the Lions coach said in the locker room inspirational speech. I'm not a sports guy. I never I was on a sports team before, but I watched a lot of movies. And I know that there's always an inspirational halftime speech, right? I don't know what the coach said, but the team that took the field in the second half in Webley Stadium was not the same team as, as the first half because they came back and they just started winning. They started moving the ball upfield. They started scoring touchdowns and field goals. And so by the time there was a minute 40 left on the clock, the Lions had brought it within two points. It was 19-21. They were shutting out the Falcons the entire second half. Falcons did a punt. The Lions marched the ball up forward. In a minute and 40 seconds, they moved within 45 yards of a field goal, which is, which is within range. Field goal right three points, in case those of you, you know, sighing, they're not watching football. They could win the game. And so Matt Prater is the place kicker, the field goal kicker for the Lions. He steps back, lines everything up, and there's just a few seconds left on the clock. Time for one last play. The snap is clean. The hold is good. He kicks it up, and he watches as it's in the air. Clock ticked down to nothing. This is it. Game's over. He watched the football go up and start to veer to the right and just misses the field goal. It's just devastating, right? For professional athletes who obsess about getting just the, the mechanics and the details exactly right. For, for somebody like Matt Prater who does one thing, he specializes in just placement kicks like this. This, this was devastating. The game was on the line. American football taking off in Europe is on the line, right? Like everything is on his shoulders and he watches the clock ticks down and his kick veers to the right. This is the kind of thing that keeps people up, athletes up in their hotel rooms after the game as they just run, th run through, roll through um, the, the play in their minds again and again and again. Just, just measuring meticulously everything about the, the mechanics, the rotation, the angles of the kick, just making sure that the next time he does it is going to be different than the last time when he did do it. And regardless of the outcome of a football game, I want I want you to experience that together, though, because there's probably not a place kicker for a professional football team here, but if there is, I'd love to talk afterwards. I have so many questions, uh, but, but you've probably had, we've all had that, that chance when, we, when we're alone at night, we go to bed, and we recall or replay the day in our minds, and like as we go through the day and some of the conversations that we had for the day, it's, it's like we, we obsessively measure and recall and, and, and wish that there was a different way that the conversation unfolded or the argument unfolded, right? Like we've all had that experience. When, when you're fighting with a close friend, just the argument breaks out. Or, or maybe it's, it's somebody that you work with, but work with like really, really closely. Or maybe it's somebody that you're dating. Or maybe it's somebody that you're married to. And there's an argument that breaks out. And because the two of you are as close as you are, you know the words, you know the thing that you could say that would inflict the maximum amount of damage and harm. 
the maximum pain for the minimal effort. And you have sworn to yourself and to that person that you'll never use that information or that thing in that way, in that context. But as the argument goes, as the blood starts to boil and your face goes to red and your heart starts to race, it just it blurts out of your mouth. And as soon as it leaves your mouth, it, it's, it's like you want to reach out, grab it, and like, like stuff it back in because you know you should not have said that. You should not have gone there. And you wish you could do it all over again, but it's too late. All there's left to do now is meticulously play through in your mind and wonder, how did that go so badly and so wrong? And what am I going to do next time? If only I could have a second chance. Maybe it's a financial decision in your past that somebody told you it's a sure thing, it's a good call, everybody's doing it. Pretty standard boilerplate stuff with just a couple of modifications. But then almost a decade later, you look back at that one signature as like the thing that brought your house of cards down. Or you look back at that one time and think, you know, if it wasn't for like this hole that I dug myself in when I was so young, man, my present and my future would look infinitely brighter than what it does right now. And you look back at that thing and you go, if only, if only I could get a second chance. When your kids are doing that thing that you just can't stand and you've told them a million and one times not to do that, to cut it out, to knock it off. You tried rewards, you tried punishments, and you come back to it again and again. And then the millionth and second time it happens, you just lost it. And you've lost it, and you're flying off the rail on your kid. And it's almost, you know what I'm talking about, it's almost like an out-of-body experience where you're watching yourself, like, let this kid have it, and you know that you're overreacting in the moment, and you know that you're going to regret it, Basically, as it's happening and unfolding in real time, and you want to push the reset button, you want to start over, you want a second chance. But that's just not how it works. But sometimes it is. You know, go back to that, that football game in Wembley Stadium, London, England. Matt Prater's kick as he watched the ball sail up towards the uprights and veer right just outside and lost the game, as he watched the clock tick down to nothing, he also saw something else. Some of you know what I'm talking about. He also saw a yellow flag streak across the field. Penalty. The snap wasn't good. In fact, it was a play clock, and the guy didn't, didn't get it out in time. It was a five-yard penalty. So, 43 yards to 48 yards, still within range. And Prater gets a second shot. He gets a second chance. He, he gets an opportunity. To, he gets an opportunity to, to take a look at, at, at all of those mechanics, the rotation, the angle, the, the wind speed, every element of it. He gets a second chance to kick it again. He gets a do-over for free. And this time, he kicks it up, and he sees the ball go up, and he sees the clock ticking down, and he sees the ball sail almost exactly through the middle of the uprights from 48 yards away, winning the game for the Lions, saving American football in England. That was probably not true, but, and they're still the Lions. But still, still though, 
He got a do-over. Do-overs are possible. And today, right, we're not here just to talk about football or financial decisions or maybe arguments or parenting. But, but today here, we're talking about the God of the do-over, the God of second chances. Because throughout this series, we're going to take a look at story after story after story in the Bible where God gives his people a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, whatever they need in order to replay it, whatever we need to replay it, to finally get things right. In this series called Do-Over, we're going to take a look. We're going to take a look at the God, the God of each one of us who, have gone, who has gone down the wrong road. We're going to take a, the, a look at the God of each one of us who have made a mistake, the God of each one of us who has, who has delayed and who has wasted all too much time. We're going to take a, God, a look at the God of the do-over together. The first story that we're going to look at is in Genesis chapter 43. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. I invite you to pull those out and take a look at it. I think the page numbers in the program. The words, however, also going to be on the screen behind me. In Genesis 43, uh, we're, we're dropping in on the middle, in the middle of a story that's massively complicated with tons of characters. I'm not, just, I'm not going to try to lay everything out for you from the get-go, but I'll try to like bring you in along the way on some of what's going on and, and why it's so important. So we're going to read out. The first one is Genesis 43, first verse, and second, it goes like this. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they, this is the family of Jacob, also known as Israel, heard about him a little while ago, and when this family had eaten up the grain that the kids have brought from Egypt, their father, Jacob Israel, said to them, Hey, go again and buy us a little more food. This is awesome because this is how you know it's a true story in real places. And it's like, come on, guy. Like, go ahead and buy us a little more food. The way he's talking about this is like, hey, we're having a party and we're out of chips. Like, run to the convenience store and pick up some more, would you? When in reality, Egypt, to get to Egypt and back is a months-long trek. And the family is running out of food. There's a famine, you heard that? There's a famine in the entire world, including Egypt. But Egypt stored up enough grain, enough food to last the seven years throughout. That's a different story entirely. And now the whole world is converging on Egypt to do exactly what they're doing. This is not going to the convenience store to pick up another jar of salsa. Like this is a massive ordeal. And what happened is that the family, the brothers now, they all, a bunch of them at least, go to Egypt and they try to buy food except for this kind of mysterious Egyptian official like latches onto them and starts asking them all these questions about where they're from, about their family. Is your father still alive? Do you have any brothers yet at home? Now they don't know that it's actually their little brother. Like I said, complicated story. But he's in disguise. They don't know who this guy is. He's asking all these prying questions that's massively coming off as creepy. And so alarm bells are going off. They just want to get out of there. Joseph, now in disguise as an Egyptian official, tells the family, go back home. Take your grain. Go back home. Get your little brother, Benjamin. Get all the brothers and come and bring him to me. And they're going like, yeah, absolutely, we're totally going to do that. Side note, there's absolutely no way we're going to do that. This guy is freaking us all out. And so they say, yeah, okay. And then they go back home and hope that the famine ends so that they never have to see that creepy Egyptian official ever again, except for that's not how the story goes because that's not how God works. 
So they go back home, and they tell dad, this is a weird like, experience we just had over there in Egypt. He wants Benjamin, and dad's like, absolutely not. I don't want to hear about this ever again. You're not going to say this again in my sight. And now dad comes up and says, let's, let's talk about that thing. Because <laughs> we're out of food. We're out of food. I don't know what to do next. And so he tries to play it off as, he, he tries to play it off light, right? He tries to say, well, maybe you just head back to Egypt and pick up a little more food. That's not a big deal, right? And what he's just about to find out is, no, dad, remember the terms of a return visit to Egypt. It's not that easy. This is what happens. Judah speaks up in verse 3, and Judah said to him, Judah said, the man, you know, Joseph in disguise, their little kid brother in disguise as an Egyptian leader, warned us solemnly, you'll not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Joseph speaks up, right? Or Judah, sorry, speaks up, right? And says, hey, hey, dad, don't forget the terms of return visit. The story goes on in verse four, and he says, if you'll send our brother along with us, dad, if you send your our brother Benjamin along, we will go down and buy food for you. Hang on a second. I want you to hear that. Dad, 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 dad. If you send Benjamin along, everything's going to be fine. Trust me, dad. I'm Judah. Now, some of you are laughing because you heard this story a little bit maybe in Sunday school growing up, and there's going to take a turn on that's going to be unexpected in just a minute. But before then, you gotta, I got to let everybody in on something. Judah can't be trusted. This whole plan hinges on Judah's character. This whole plan hinges on, well, Judah, he's not the oldest, but the oldest several kids actually screwed up massively and are sort of written out of everything. And now Judah is fourth in line, but he kind of acts like a leader of the oldest. So I guess he's good enough. The whole thing hinges Judah can be trusted to bring my kid to Egypt and bring my kid home again to this creepy Egyptian official. It's very mysterious. Can he? Dad? Now what, now what dad doesn't know, what dad doesn't know is that earlier on, the, one of the first times that we're introduced to Judah, the brothers all get together and they decide, I am so sick of Joseph. And they decide to throw him in a pit. First they decide to kill him because that's how angry they are. And then Reuben, being the upstanding citizen and brother that he is, says, no, 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 let's just throw him in a well and just let him die. That way we don't have to get our clothes messy and dirty. Seems reasonable. Reuben wanted to come back later that night and rescue him. But in the meantime, while Reuben was away and Joseph, the brother, youngest kid, was at the time was in a pit, Judah comes along and says, hey, here's an idea. Rather than kill him or just let him die, we got some Ishmaelite traders coming. We'll sell him into slavery. They're headed towards Egypt. I'm sure he'll be fine. But why should we, why should we not gain anything from our brother's life? And then a line that I just absolutely love, and Judah says, after all, he is our own flesh and blood. It's like you've got to, Judah, you've got to be kidding me, man. But Nevertheless, that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. Joseph, different story, but, you know, works his way up to essentially rule over all of Egypt in this wild story that you'll have to check out on your own sometime. But that's Judah, right? Judah's the guy who literally sells his kid brother into slavery in order to profit from him. That's the character. And so I just want to submit to you that that's maybe not the guy you want chaperoning the family trip to Egypt, right? 
taking the kid, bro, the next kid brother with him. I mean, he was trusted once, didn't really go well. However, dad doesn't know that story. He thinks that Joseph was bitten and eaten by a ferocious animal. But what dad does know is something that we're going to call the Tamar incident. Kids are out of here, first through fifth grade, last chance. No, just kidding. It's going to be all right. The Tamar incident is Judah. Uh, Judah's son, old son, he's got three boys. Oldest son gets married to a woman named Tamar. Long story, first son dies. Well, that was kind of unusual, but, you know, uh, moving right on. The rules of the Old Testament uh, law said that when that happens, in order to keep property and the family line continuing, the next brother's responsibility was to marry the woman, the widow of the oldest brother, and to, like, keep the line going. So Tamar then marries a guy by the name of Onan. So Onan has this heart where he's like, I know this is my responsibility. However, if we have a baby, then all of the property and everything stays in Tamar's and then the, the offspring and then that baby's name. And I'm, I'm never going to accrue anything for myself. And so what happens, what happens is, is Onan decides, yeah, I'll take her, but like, I'm going to take special measures in order to not have a child with her. Anyway, that, eventually that goes on long enough and he dies. And now Judah's thinking, man, Tamar is cursed, right? That's the only logical explanation. He's got one kid left, but he's, he's still pretty small. So he says to Tamar, you know what? Why don't you just wait and hang out for a little while? When he's older, I'm absolutely, totally going to give his hand to you in marriage to have a baby together, to do this kinsman redeemer tradition that they have set up. You can trust me, I'm Judah. You kind of know where that's going, right? Time goes by, a long time goes by. Tamar never actually gets around to marrying that last kid that Judah had. Judah doesn't want to give him over in marriage because he's like, she's cursed or something. Like, I don't know. He's now 20-something, and he's like, yeah, yeah, a little longer. Like, we'll just kind of hang out. You know, he's still growing up. He's got a rebellious phase to get out or whatever. Just hang tight, Tamar. Tamar realizes he's never going to make good because Judah has no character. Because Judah's a lowlife. Judah's a dirtbag. Judah cannot be trusted. So she takes things into her own hands. This is where it gets weird. This is how you know the Bible just, I mean, you, nobody would make this up. You can't make this up. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, goes into town. Judah comes walking by, hires her. Again, you wouldn't want to make this up, okay? They get together. He's like, ah, I don't have my wallet on me. Shoot. And she's like, wait, wait, hang on a second. Like, you don't just get up. You got to give me something. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'm totally, I'm going to just go get, and then I'll pay you. And she's like, no, you can't just leave like that. That's not how it works. Give me something as, and I want you to write down a word. Give me something as a pledge. Nobody's really moving to write it down. Just remember it then. That's okay. Just give me something as a pledge. So he hands her the, his cord and seal. It's called cord. It's a leather necklace with like a cylindrical uh, 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 kind of pottery thing with a hole through it with his special markings on it. It's like a driver's license. He gives her his staff and his cord and steel and says, take these as a pledge, right? And then he goes away, gets his guys. He's like, hey, I kind of owe somebody some money, so if you could go take care of that for me. They go into town, and she's gone. She's in the wind, gone. Judah realizes, well, that's a gimme. Let's try not to remember this. Just forget about it and move on. Awesome plan. A little while later, a uh, uh, little while later, She's come, brought before everybody, and she's pregnant. 
Tamar's three months pregnant. I mean, Judah's like, he puts on the indignant face. I can't believe that you would be unfaithful. I was totally going to offer you my son in marriage. And now you're pregnant. This is how you, this is how you know somebody is guilty. He comes way over the top to the punishment fitting the crime. And he's like, well, if that's how you're going to treat my family, in that case, I'm going to bring you into the town square and I'm going to have you executed for this thing that you've done. Like, what in the world? Where is this? Where in the world is this coming from? And so she stays quiet through the whole thing. And she's brought in the town square when everybody's around, just emphasize everybody now is watching. And just about when they're, when they're going to pronounce her sentence and put her to death, she holds up the cord and seal and she holds up the staff and she says, the baby growing within me belongs to the owner of these two things. Everybody knows Judas, the dad, his heart has just been broken open and laid bare. And all of the dark things in his heart, the entire town is now watching. Every deep thing that he hopes nobody would ever find out about is just exposed to everybody. A few people in the room have had experiences where you know what this is like. Unfortunately, there's a few more people in the room who will have experiences like that where all of your dirty laundry, everything is just exposed to everybody. You have nothing left to hide. And Judah says something absolutely fascinating. Judah says something life-changing. He looks at the situation, instead of minimizing what he's done, instead of blaming her for dressing up and tricking him and whatever, and instead of denying that any of this actually happened because there's proof against it, Judah looks back on her, and in Genesis 38, verse 26, he, Judah recognized that. It says that Judah recognized them immediately, and he said, she is more righteous than I she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my last son, Shelah. She is more righteous than I. She, the woman I still believe may be cursed, maybe now more than ever, still more righteous than I. She, the woman who dressed up like a prostitute, is more righteous than I am. She, the one who tricked me, is still more righteous than I am. I want you to... I want you to feel and, 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 and experience the severe and profound brokenness that is Judah's life, that is Judah's heart as he lays it out open to everybody to see. And I want you to take this opportunity because this is, this is key. This is very intentional for us to start a series called Do-Over the same way because there's something that you need to know. There's something you need to know but because before God gives you the do-over, the, the new start, the fresh start that you so desperately crave, it all tends to start with the same way. And I'm going to introduce to you an Old Testament, or I'm sorry, an old-timey theological word. It's called contrition. Contrition is like this, this deep regret, profound remorse. I want to tell you, contrition is not the same thing as like surface-level regret. Service level regret says, I am so sorry that I was caught. Contrition says, I am so deeply sorry for the thing itself. The reason why we have to know about what this word contrition means is that if we have any hope 
that tomorrow is going to be different than yesterday. If we have any hope that who we are in the future is going to be any different than who we were in the past, it all heads through contrition. It all has to go to contrition because contrition is the way that God changes us and prepares us for the do-over that he is just about to give you. Contrition is the first step. And the reason why it's so important is because when you look back on certain events in your life and you look back at certain decisions that you make and certain things you really want to take back, and if you're only sorry for how somebody reacted or if you're only sorry for maybe getting caught then you don't really ever have any hope to change. But if you look back at that thing, that decision or the words or the action, you look back at that thing and you're sorry for what it was. You're sorry for dishonoring the God whose name you bear when you call yourself a Christian. And you look at that thing and you're sorry for stepping off the right path that God made for you. And you're sorry for failing to measure up to the image of God that you bear then you have a hope that God might change you. In a weird way, this place of having it all broken open and everybody seeing, in a weird way, that's gospel. Like, that's good news. That's something awesome and that's something beautiful. And Judah got to experience that. Judah got to experience that and David got to experience that. Uh, David, King David is a great king in ancient Israel. Uh, sexual sin with Bathsheba, ended up killing her husband, murdered him so he could marry her. They have a baby. It's all outed. The prophet comes to David, exposes his sin to everybody. And David, it doesn't say this, but I just imagine David hits his knees in that moment. And he doesn't go to, I'm sorry you feel that way. And he doesn't go to, I'm sorry I got caught. In that moment, David sits down and he pens the words of Psalm 51, verse 7. He says, my sacrifice, O God, my sacrifice, oh God, is not a bigger tithe into the bucket. My sacrifice, oh God, is not a pledge to do better the next time around. No, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, you will not despise because God honors the contrite heart. God honors the brokenness with a do-over, with a fresh start. I want to come back to this Judah story in verse 5. It says, okay, now Judah kind of getting everything together. He's a changed man, but nobody believes it because he's Judah. Judah comes back and he goes, if you'll not send him, then we're not going to go down. Because this mysterious Egyptian official, the man said to us, you'll not seek my face again. You'll not see my face again unless your brother Benjamin is with you. It's creepy, but you know, we move on. Israel as... Jacob, the dad. Now, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Valid question. They replied, hey, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know that he would say, bring your brother down here? It's, it's true. It was rather unexpected. Verse 8. Verse 8, this is where it gets real interesting now. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we'll go at once. 
And remember, Judah is talking to his dad, and he says, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Get ready for this. This blows my mind in verse 9. I myself will guarantee, just pause and think about that. I myself will guarantee, other ways, another word for it is pledge. I myself will pledge his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, dad, I will bear the blame. I will bear the blame before you all my life. I am so pumped about this. I don't even know which layer to pick up right away, but I'm just going to start talking. I hope it makes sense. Because when he says guarantee, that's not just a euphemism. It's not just a phrase that gets tossed around. When he says guarantee, it's a technical phrase. It's a guarantee like a pledge, like a safety deposit, or like a, like a deposit on a payment, on a future payment to come. When he says, I myself will guarantee the return safety of your son. I mean, just think about the ramifications of this. Think about how the first time he was put in charge of a kid brother. He sold him into slavery into Egypt, and now that guy is just about to stand right in front of him. Think about regretting that decision his whole life, especially after his heart was broken, contrite, tore open, and laid bare for the entire town to see, and word travels fast then as it does now. Think about the change that he experienced in his life. And think about the opportunity rolling back the Joseph story and yearning for a do-over, yearning for a fresh start, yearning to experience something new, a change that's new in his life. And now he gets another chance. And now he has another brother yet to take care of. And now everything is riding on his shoulder as he sees the clock ticking down. And he's got an opportunity now to do it right the second time. Stepping in the place of Benjamin saying, my life for his, I pledge it. But it doesn't just stop there because it's the same word. I love this so much. It's the same word. It's the same word, pledge, that Judah offered to Tamar years earlier and offered her his pledge, his cord and seal and staff. And it's because of that pledge that he offered her that she became pregnant she became pregnant, by the way, with twins who show up twice in the Bible. The first time was in the royal kingly line of David, that David. You see, it's all coming together like it's almost, there's one author to this incredible story. Those twins were, were in the line, the family line of David, the adulterer, David, David the king, David whose sin was out of David, the contrite spirit, you will not deny that David. The pledge made all of that happen. The twins again show up a second time, not in the Old Testament this time, in the New Testament this time. In Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew the tax collector, a broken man himself, looks at Jesus and says, something you got to know about this guy. It's just going through his family line, and he gets to the twins, and he goes out of his way to say, you know the twins' mom? If you can believe it, it was Tamar. And his dad was Judah. Judah was an heir to the Savior of the world. Judah was an heir to the man who would be called the Lion of Judah. A man who would be called the Lamb who was saved. The sacrificial Lamb, remember? The sacrificial Lamb who stepped in to the place of punishment and condemnation and judgment on our behalf. Stepping into the shoes as the firstborn Son of God. 
to bear the punishment for all of those adopted little brothers and sisters that would ever come after him. Do you hear how the story of Jesus resonates and echoes throughout the Old Testament, all the way pointing to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world? I put all this story together in all of its many layers and all of its facets. There's so much to hold on to and to keep track of. And the thing I think I'm most struck by is the God who looks at the failures and the screw-ups, the God who looks at the one who's taken the wrong turn and has wasted so much time as Judah has. And he says, there's still time left on the clock and I'm not finished yet. I'm not done with you yet, Judah. But I can't do anything with you as long as you have that stubborn, closed heart. I'm not done with you. And he looks at Judah and he says, you break that thing open. You experience contrition. You hand that heart over to me and now we can get started. Now we can do something incredible. Judah, you just wait to see what I do with you. You just wait. What the people are going to sing what everybody is going to say about not just the person Judah, the tribe of Judah, you just wait. There's still time left on the clock, and I'm not finished yet. To borrow a phrase, to borrow a phrase from a ministry leader who was disgraced not too long ago. He, he came out... Um, fired from his job, let go. Whether he did or they did, it, it doesn't matter. He acknowledges the whole thing, and he said, it was an addiction, an alcohol addiction, and just a bunch of other stuff, and I'm out. I need to be done here. He loses his job, his career. He loses his ministry. He loses his reputation. He just about loses his family. And then he wakes up one morning, and as he tells the story, he wakes up in Tucson, Arizona in July, right? Yeah, hot. And he's watching the sunset, and he gets real reflective about life. To borrow a phrase, he, he says he almost, not quite, but it's the closest he's ever come to audibly hearing the voice of God. And the voice of God whispers into his life, if you're not dead, I'm not done. God isn't finished yet. Church, whatever your past, whatever you need a do-over from, if you're not dead, God's not done. There's still time left on the clock. God isn't finished yet. And it starts with that broken heart. I invite you to stand up and let's reveal to God the hearts that are each within each one of us today. Gracious God, at some level or another, we each have a dysfunctioning, malfunctioning heart. And so God, some of us, we want to be quick and turn it over to you in a simple, easy, fast way and say, God, here, take it. Do something with it. Honor this. Put it together. Make everything right again. But God, you often take the slow route and the more painful route because you don't, you're not seeking after surface change, but you want deep change. 
You want to give us a fresh start. You're ready to give us a do-over. God, give us the courage today with you, maybe even in the car rides on the way home, to share out loud what some of those corridors of our heart look like. Turn them over to you and experience your love first and foremost. And we pray for change.